Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders has announced that she will be leaving the White House by the end of the month. Andrea Horvath says that she'll be staying as leader of the Ontario NDP. And a report from the nonprofit Generation Squeeze says that home prices have come to the point where they're double what Canadian millennials can actually afford. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, there's more going on in the world than just the Raptors winning the NBA title. Uh, honestly, there is. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a bit of a surprise announcement uh, where one of the most polarizing figures in the Trump administration, and, and that's saying something, obviously, given some of the uh, the folks that we've been dealing with there, uh, announced that she's stepping down. That being, of course, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she's leaving the White House at the end of the month. Joining us to talk about this is Orion Hurl, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, specializing in American politics. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, no problem at all. Happy to be here. Were you surprised by the announcement? Uh, in general, I'm not surprised that anyone who's been serving in a presidential administration decides after three and a half years to move on in life. Uh, I think particularly in the case of uh, press secretary, it is a pretty demanding job, a pretty stressful job. And for someone like Sanders who has a family, I think that at some point just the uh, the level of stress, the level of difficulty, the, the strain it's going to put on you uh, personally uh, you know, can kind of draw you away from the uh, the limelight of politics. So, uh, no, I'm, in, in general, I'm not I'm not surprised. It is a, this extraordinarily difficult job, and she probably wants to think about some other options uh, looking forward in her both her personal and her professional life. I was watching some of the feedback on social media when the announcement was made yesterday, and, and there were some who were speculating uh, that she may have fallen out of favor. I mean, because some of the other people that have left the White House over the last couple of years, uh, you know, it, it's usually because the, he's, they've said something or the president just gets, whether it's Rex Tillerson or somebody else, just said, okay, enough is enough. I, I don't get that impression though ryan i think they, they were very tight weren't they or still are yeah I, mean, I think that uh trump uh definitely appreciated her abilities uh as a press secretary uh, as i said it is it is not an easy job and i i don't think that this is this is the same situation uh with so many other people in the trump administration where there has been uh there has been there's been tension um, if I had to guess i would i would think that uh sanders is probably looking forward to a political career, perhaps beginning in Arkansas. There is going to be a gubernatorial election in 2022 um, in Arkansas. The sitting Republican governor uh, can't uh, is uh, term limited, so they can't, she can't go up for re-election. So I think that's possible that Sanders is thinking about her own political future, and I think it's possible she's going to have a very bright one. One of the things, if you've read some of the background material, well, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, of course, I, I think they mentioned this a number of times. Uh, one, I guess the trait that Trump always looks for in his staff and his attorneys general, I guess, for that matter, is loyalty. Uh, above all else, uh, even if the truth has to be a victim of that, it has to be loyalty. And she actually personified that, didn't she? Uh, I think in, in some ways. Um, I, certainly in terms of this question of the, the truthfulness of Sanders, that people point to some some errors that she made. Uh, particularly a comment she made about the fact that, or her claim rather, that there was a lot of opposition to James Comey within the FBI. So I think that is was an example of where her instinct to try to uh, shore up the president's defenses uh, kind of overcame her her better sensibilities. Uh, I think that, you know, in some positions within the federal government, within the, the American federal government, you want individuals who are going to be uh, willing to put the interests of you know law and policy ahead of loyalty to the president. In the case of press secretary, though, it is sort of reasonable to understand that if you understand that that the person speaking for the president is going to well be loyal to the president and be primarily concerned with that. Obviously, it shouldn't extend as far as distorting the truth, but I think that's uh, I think she she definitely did demonstrate that loyalty, and I think that. That loyalty will probably also serve her, um, given the uh, you know this, the the constituency she's going to want to uh, draw support from as she goes forward in her political career, assuming she's pursuing a political career, which I do. Yeah, there were, I know the the Comey situation was one example, but I mean, if you to listen to some of the feedback uh, and and some of the observations from m- many people in the media, I guess with the possible exclusion of Fox News. 
they, f- I, I think, were very frustrated by Sarah Huckabee Sanders sure. and uh, and the spin that she would put on things. I, I, I don't know. I guess we have to get into a definition of what the press secretary is actually supposed to do. Is it disseminate information or is it to have the president's back? Probably a combination of the two. Right. I mean, I do think that a lot of people in the press understandably uh, are dissatisfied with Sanders, uh, not least because the, the number of press briefings has been reduced so radically, over, particularly over the course of the last year, I think particularly since January. And there is this sense in which the, the sort of semi-official role of the, the White House press corps has been not exactly nullified, but certainly reduced within the Trump administration. And that's understandable. On the other hand, there's no constitutional requirement that the White House press corps uh, play a semi, a semi-official role within a, within American politics. I mean, in some ways, it does seem as if it's the almost the American equivalent of question period. Um, but then, it's perhaps not the most effective way to be communicating ideas. Uh, maybe not the most most effective way to be communicating policy. Uh, so it is understandable to me uh, that uh, why the press corps is critical of Sanders Huckabee. Uh, at the same time, if you look at it from the other perspective, I don't think there's any other president's probably in our lifetime that has had such a hostile uh, response or uh, has such a hostile press corps to deal with and perhaps extending that to journalism as a whole. So I think that there's, there's no love lost on either side. Was she too aggressive in, in her style and her demeanor? Uh, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I think that's so like so much during the Trump era, this is something that is colored by people's, uh, you know, partisans dispositions. Uh, I don't, I, I think this is an era in which it's, it's no longer dangerous or bad for a woman to be aggressive, uh, to be aggressive in public. And I think that that is a style that even if it's, uh, disconcerting, uh, to some, I think it is uh, something that is, is going, definitely going to help her going into the future. But she did uh, share the same disdain for the, the media that, that obviously Donald Trump has, and, she, and she's, she seemed to do that. Uh, and and I, I get the impression sometimes, Ryan, especially when she was relatively new to the job a few years ago, uh, that she looked at the way Sean Spicer, who was the previous press secretary, handled things and, and almost got rolled over by the media. And, and, and she seemed to come into this job with the resolve to say, they're not going to push me around. Right, and I think this gets back to your earlier question about the level of, of loyalty that she received or that she demonstrated for President Trump. And I think that that, um, and, then, and so perhaps the reason she was able to have such a relatively successful tenure as a press secretary, why she's able to leave on good terms, uh, was precisely because uh, she, was, uh, she was oppositional, she was adversarial. And uh, that's, not, you know, that, that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Um, as I said, in some ways, the, the White House press corps and the, these press briefings are almost like the American equivalent of question period. And we expect question period in Canada to be adversarial. That's the whole point. So I, I don't think that it's, it's not, nece- it's not sim- I mean, it is called a briefing. It's, I suppose, in our minds, you, there might be some advantage to having it be just sort of a general neutral dissemination of information. But uh, the fact of the matter is, a lot of information isn't neutral. There are always going to be differing interpretations. It, it's going to be something like a battle uh, in many cases, and certainly she was she was very good at it, I think. Well, and, and again, we come back to the role of, of what she had to do there, and, and even the purpose of having those quote-unquote briefings, uh, because basically, no matter what administration we're talking about, whether it's Trump, whether it's uh, Obama, whether it's Bush, we can go down the list here, the job is not so much to disseminate information, it's basically to defend policy, because you're going to get the Q&A from the media that are going to start questioning all this stuff. Uh, and as you say, in question period, for instance, on this side of the border, mm-hmm. you assume the prime minister is going to be there to answer. Nine times out of ten, the president doesn't do that sort of thing, but the press secretary is front and center, and they're the ones who are defending the policy of the government. Right. The, it does. In some ways, it does seem strange from a Canadian perspective that there is this one figurehead uh, who is not elected, who perhaps does not have extensive political experience and certainly doesn't have extensive policy experience, uh, that this one individual uh, is, the, is, is, is this figurehead for an entire administration. Uh, there's an element of theater to it. And in some ways, that's a reason to not take it all that seriously. But on the other hand, 
Uh, as a figurehead, uh, you know, Sanders is someone who is in the public's eye, and perhaps uh, actually for many people, the information they're getting about politics might be associated with her, which her statements and her briefings. So it is important in that sense. But yes, yes, from my perspective, it is an element of American political theater that is that, that is somewhat strange. And frankly, it's not even clear what, uh, if it plays all that much of an important role, uh, just to be just to be perfectly frank. Um, it is an opportunity for people, for reporters or the press secretary to engage in a kind of spectacle. And I don't know, is, is, this, is this really what uh, journalism should be focusing on? Uh, are, there better, you know, is, are there better ways to communicate this kind of information? Probably. But we live in a society of spectacle. So, you know, I, I don't want to uh, totally dismiss it. Um, but it is not uh, it is not the most serious aspect of American politics. That's for certain. But we also live in the in the era of twenty four hour news cycles too. I, this is not just right. like you know uh, your Washington correspondent would have to go and file a story, and it would be on the six o'clock news with Walter Cronkite or whatever that was back in those generations. They need they need stuff to fill that twenty four hours, and so uh, I guess they do tend to get down to the minutia, and that's where the frustration on the media would come in because they're not getting the information that they're actually asking for to fill that sort of stuff. So they they they, they do get confrontational and i guess it's reciprocated obviously by whoever the press secretary is right i mean this is kind of opening up the uh you know the the issue a bit more but it reminds me of something that um a white house speechwriter ben rhodes said back in the obama administration talking about a lot of journalists in dc he said that many of them are 27 8 uh, 27 or 28 years old they haven't done a lot of work. They don't. Uh, they haven't seen a lot of the country. They don't have a lot of sort of historical or comparative knowledge. They literally know nothing. Um, and I think that in, under these circumstances, what you're dealing with is a, a form of journalism that is, in some ways, it's easy to produce. You know, it gets back to this question of feeding the 24-hour news cycle. It doesn't take too much um, effort. It doesn't take too much. Uh, you know, a focus uh, in, in order to produce uh, sort of, you know, news bites uh, when you're dealing with the, the White House press briefings. Um, now, you, you can easily imagine that there are different kinds and different forms of journalism that are going to be, um, you know, going to be more informative, uh, going to be more useful both for, you know, for the public, certainly. Uh, having said that, you know, it's easy to think, oh, well, people should re- what people should really be reading and consuming more serious forms of journalism and not these public spectacles. But in many cases, you know, people want people want the spectacle. Uh, they people want the uh, the political theater, not the more you know detailed investigative journalistic reporting that that might be more useful. Well, and we've discovered that over the last couple of years. I've had a number of discussions with uh, media uh, consultants and uh, and experts on this, too. And uh, uh, unfortunately, you're right. I mean, instead of looking for in-depth news, a lot of us are, are educating ourselves through the chyron on the front of the television screen. Uh, we just want that little one-line bit there, and that's our, that's our information. We don't necessarily dig for the details, uh, and that's what they're looking for, to fill that chyron all the time. No, I think, I think you're absolutely correct on that. So, and, and and to the confrontational point, and, and uh, I guess depending on how controversial the administration is, uh, obviously, we, as we mentioned earlier, that press secretary has to be the defender of that. I mean, you know, during the Bush administration, when uh, the controversy was going on, of course, about the weapons of mass destruction and, and the invasions, right. et cetera, I think it was Ari Fleischer was the press secretary then, and it got pretty testy between he and the media oftentimes. Right. And, you know, it, it is, you know, in, in, in obviously you do want the press to be confrontational to, you know, to a degree. Uh, I think people will probably be arguing for a long time whether the press in the United States has, um, has had difficulty maintaining any kind of objectivity when covering uh, the Trump administration, which is sort of one perspective. On the other perspective, the other perspective could be is that, you know, it is not necessarily to be, it's not necessary to be totally neutral um, if you think that their administration is being deliberately deceptive or an administration is being uh, deliberately incompetent. So yeah, it is, it is, we would expect and we would hope and want journalists to be, to be adversarial uh, when they're encountering a president. But I think that, you know, the, the, the other issue here is that, you know, what, how adversarial was the press corps during the Obama administration? Um, can do to what extent is the press corps, the White House press corps, the media more in general? Uh, to what extent do they hold dif- uh, hold different presidents to different kinds of standards? Um, I, 
obviously that's a difficult question to answer. Well, the whole idea about the you know being as, as impartial as you possibly could, or at least the perception of that, uh, has seemingly gone out the window. I mean, a lot of media down in the states right now just kind of wear it on their sleeve. They're either left leaning or right leaning. They have entire networks that are dedicated to that. Uh, and and as a result, the politicians take sides too, and said, "Hey, I like that's those guys because they like what me I'm doing. I don't like them because they're always criticizing me." Right, right. And I've I've changed my mind as an observer of American politics of this over time. I mean, obviously, we've been able to see the political polarization of media in the states for a very long time, and obviously, not only in the states. And my my initial response to this or my longtime position was that well the further you go back in time you go back way to the 19th century that was a point in time when you know uh news coverage journalism was explicitly partisan and so therefore when you're consuming a newspaper in the 19th century you know you're reading either a republican or a democratic newspaper you expected it so and so in a sense your your consumption of media was filtered through that knowledge um, and so I thought, well, maybe it won't be so terrible now, you know, if we're moving back to a more partisan media environment. But increasingly, it seems to me that it's difficult even to, even to establish a basis of fact from which uh, politics can have, you know, people engaged in politics can have a discussion. Um, it's more than just partisanship. It, you know, what happens when a journalistic partisanship, you know, ends up creating a world in which people can't even agree what facts they're disagreeing about? So it's going to be, and this obviously is not a problem that's going to go away, and it's probably going to become even more evident as we head into uh, presidential election season. Well, and what further polarizes that, I guess, is what we find time and time again these days anyway, Ryan, is people tend to gravitate to to whatever media would substantiate their political views already. In other words, if you're right-leaning, more often than not, you're going to watch a right-leaning TV network, you're going to read a right-leaning newspaper, and, and vice versa, of course, if you're on the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, it's not a matter of gathering information. It's really, it's a matter of, I guess, trying to find somebody that validates what you already feel. Right, and that's why I think that the the decline, I mean, even at a time when uh, media was becoming more polarized, there was still often a sense that there were some some news outlets, let's say the New York Times, that you could still be trusted, uh, could still be trusted in the sense of providing a kind of a sort of a, the starting point, the basis for discussion, and even that's being lost. And I think that's I think that's potentially very dangerous. And I think what's also important to remember here is that I'm not in any way suggesting that. Um, you know, journalists, they are inclined to lie or be deceptive. It's never about that. It's rather, you know, the, the bias comes in in terms of the kinds of stories people want to focus on, the kinds of interpretations people make. Uh, I don't think journalists are engaged in any kind of, you know, deception or, or deliberate lying. Um, but it is the case that if you have to foster a certain kind of attitude, that, it's, that is very difficult. It's very difficult for any journalist nowadays, perhaps always, to go into political coverage and say, I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to play, play the role of an umpire. I mean, that's the best way to think about it. The, umpire, the journalist as umpire or referee. That, I think, has gone out the window. And for the reasons you've said, it's very difficult to know how to recapture it. Because in some ways, the problem is with us. The problem is with ordinary citizens. People want to have, you know, inflammatory, polarized uh, journalism. Uh, it's more exciting in a lot of ways. Um, it's more exciting than someone who's simply trying to be fair. Uh, Ryan, thanks as always. Really appreciate your time today and your perspective. Oh, thank you for contacting me uh, anytime. Betcha. Ryan Hurl Hoods, uh, assistant professor, of course, in the Department of Political Science at uh, the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, the, uh, the NDP are in town uh, holding their convention this weekend, and uh, NDP leader, provincial leader, that is Andrea Horvath. Uh, such she's going to continue on. Uh, well, every time there's a convention or any time of a meeting, invariably the rumors start that uh, that uh, somebody's going to try to dump Andrew Horvath as leader of the provincial party, and she says uh, not going to happen. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalos, so a social sciences and humanities research council post postdoctoral fellow at uh, University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for jumping in. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, for having me. Is is it a coincidence that every time after an election or every time there's a convention, uh, all of a sudden the rumblings start? Well, how long is Andrea Horvath going to last? And it's oh, it's coming up on ten years, I guess now. So she seems to be pretty resilient from that standpoint. Yeah, no, certainly. I think that you know the the reason it comes up with any convention, not just with Horvath, but with any leader, is that this is the time that you replace someone. I mean, at every convention, there'll usually be a motion or a question to say, "Do you think we should have a leadership review?" 
uh, and if, or do you think that we should have a new leadership contest? And the membership will vote on it. And if the, if they say yes, then then we'll have a new leadership contest. But even if it's close to fifty fifty, even sixty forty, leaders might take that as a a loss of confidence. So this is the moment, if you're ever going to see it, where a leader will be removed by anything other than their own accord. They're usually a pretty benign exercise, though, aren't they? Because invariably, you know, they, they figure, well, we got to sh- show our support or at least show that we're united here. Uh, but mind, there have been exceptions. Tim Hudak, I think, kind of got blindsided by the conservative. What did he get? About sixty percent, I think. Uh, when they asked for that. And, of course, the, I guess the most famous example over the last little while is uh, Tom Mulcair after the last federal election. Uh, he went out there to Edmonton to figure out everything is going to be fine. He left without a job at the end of the day. So it, it can happen. But, uh, I guess you have to be able to read the tea leaves to find out just what the mood of the party is. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I think in this case, you know, uh, Horwath picking up seats in the last election, forming official opposition, picking up votes, whether or not everyone is satisfied with the result is one thing. But the reality is that it's not quite the same as the Tom Mulcair situation or even, you know, Joe Clark back in the in the 70s, early 80s, where, you know, he did briefly form government but sort of lost it. And then that kind of signaled his downfall as, as PC leader, as, you know, he would ultimately have the leadership uh, review and then and then not feel he got the sufficient amount and would, have, you know, be replaced by Brian Mulroney. So, you know, certainly uh, there's a desire to show unity. But at these sorts of things, you know, if people smell the opportunity, to add a new leader, to take power themselves, or put somebody they like in power. I mean, this is the time to do it. But you've heard the criticism after the last provincial election last year, though, Christo, uh, that you know the, the current government at that time, anyway, the Kathleen Wynne government was so far down in the polls. Uh, and there were polls that, back before the vote was actually taken that showed the NDP were either close or, in some cases, I even saw a couple of polls that said they were even ahead of the, the Conservative Party at that time. So there was an expectation in some circles that uh, the NDP might even form this government. It didn't happen, uh, which is, uh, in many people's minds, another disappointment as far as this concerned. In other words, uh, the criticism I heard oftentimes was, well, Andrea can't win the big one, she, you know, and, and maybe it's time to look someplace else. Is, is that a valid criticism after a result like that? I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I, I see people's perspective, but, you know, this election had a lot of unique factors to it. You know, Kathleen Wynne was the early resignation the sort of liberal Tory, you know, united front against the NDP that we saw in the last couple of weeks. You know, Kathleen Wynne taking a very anti-labor uh, line in the last couple of weeks are all factors that I don't think Andrew Horowitz could have necessarily controlled and really showed the, the extent to which, you know, much of media and much of the, the establishment united against her. Uh, and I think in, 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 that, in that context, she did quite well. Um, there's another factor, too, which is that, you know, you could say, you know, person X can't win the big one, whether that's true or not, well, you have to have a mind of, well, who is the person who can do it? And I've heard no real, you know, discussions of, you know, this is Andrea Horwath's successor. The person we talked about being Andrea Horwath's successor before was Jagmeet Singh, and now he's leader of the federal party. So the reality is, is that, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a person tailor-made to, to replace Andrew Horwath right now, so much so that they could galvanize support uh, around the, the, the call to have a leadership review. You know, that person might step through a void if that leadership review happened, but there's nobody right now who's seen as an open air apparent. And that's, I guess, the, the catalyst that's needed to really get fuel the fire, I guess, for these sorts of discussions, isn't it? If they say, hey, you know what, we do have an alternative. Well, not just that. I mean, with Tom O'Kear, there, there there were alternatives. You know, people were talking about Charlie Angus yeah. and people like him being the alternative. But there wasn't an heir apparent, but that was in an election where the party lost over half its seats and what have you. Horowitz, whether or not people are ultimately satisfied with the result, the reality was that it was, a, it was a good result. And so when you have a good result, to turf somebody, you really do need an additional reason. You can't just, you, you do need somebody to step through the void. Uh, and uh, as you said, even when Howard Hampton stepped down as NDP leader, uh, which eventually led to Andrea Horvath getting the gig, there were other names that were being kicked around provincially here, too, to say, well, okay. And, and again, that was the accusation against Hampton at the time, if you remember, Christo. He can't win the big one. Uh, there were chances there where there seemed to be some, some major shifts in government and in voting poli- uh, techniques here in the province of Ontario, but the NDP couldn't seem to capture that. Uh, so it, it doesn't, I guess, if you look at the bigger picture like this, aside from the Bob Ray years, uh, it's been a pretty consistent story with the NDP here in Ontario. 
Yeah, you know, you look, historically, the, the NDP in Ontario has been opposition multiple times. If you go back to the it's in 1943, the CCF formed official opposition back then um, and looked to be forming government in the, in the, in the mid-1940s, but there was a systematic you know, uh, spying campaign by the OPP headed up by the Premier at the time against the CCF. And in the 1970s, you know, they formed opposition under people like Stephen Lewis. But you're right that they've only formed government once in Ontario. And, and so it's, it's, it's hard to, to judge, uh, you know, a leader based on the standard of forming government for a party that's generally been an opposition party. And I'm not saying that members can't do that, but it is, you know, a context where it's like, well, you know, Horwath isn't the only leader to have not formed government. Every leader but one has not formed government. And yet many of them have had long tenures. So the question is, uh, you know, what, does Horwath, one, speak to the values of the party, and two, if, if, if you do want a replacement, uh, who is that replacement and will they do better? And given how popular Andrew Horwath is with the electorate, there are question marks about that. Well, that's an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, uh, there's two ways that we tend to evaluate, I guess. Obviously, there's you know the support for the political party, and then there's the support for the leaders. And, and we saw uh, one of those polls, actually a couple of them were released just the other day, uh, which uh, showed that uh, Doug Ford's party, of course, has gone down considerably, but his personal popularity has gone down. In those same polls, though, Crystal, Andrew Horvath always scores very well. People seem to like her, but that doesn't seem to translate necessarily into votes for that party. Well, I mean, you know, it, 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 it does translate into votes. Like, in the last election, her numbers remained high, but her, her recognition went up. And I think that was one of the translation of the votes. People always liked Andrea. They didn't always really know who she was, because... Because I think we know this, that a lot of the mainstream media will, will only cover the NDP to, to, to sort of criticize the party. And so um, in, in some ways, it's difficult for them to get mainstream media recognition in comparison to the big two. Now, the question is, is that, is that everything? Certainly not. And, you know, the Ray Day brand in, 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 in Ontario, I think, is a counterbalance to the party, if not Andrea Horwath's personal favorability. But her favorabilities remain strong. Her favorabilities have remained high, and while her her negatives have risen a little bit in the context of a very polarized uh, Queen's Park, the reality is that, you know, I think she's doing a good job of keeping those numbers up. And that's all she can do to a certain degree. She can point to her high favorability and the fact that the NDP continues to pull well, even in this fluctuating provincial environment. We still tend, though, to put an awful lot on the shoulders of the, of the party leader, whether it's the NDP, the Liberal, or the, uh, the Conservative in, in, here in Ontario, the Progressive Conservative Party anyway. Is, is that really fair? Uh, because there's so much more at stake here and so much more that goes into that, uh, policy decisions, etc., the other people on the team. But we seem to focus on the leader and say, well, you, you live and die by who you select and how they perform. Well, you know, whether or not that is fair, cause I don't, I agree with you. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's about a party, it's about a team, it's about a vision you know, a movement, what have you. But the, but the reality is that the leader has such immense power in our system, especially in a majority government. If you look at how much power Doug Ford has and Doug Ford's office has relative even to his own cabinet and caucus, it's, it's night and day. I mean, the leader is immensely powerful in the Canadian parliamentary system. I mean, some scholars have pointed out that it's almost a kind of form of mild dictatorship when you have a majority government you know, led, you know, the, the prime minister, premier, and that such immense power. So the leader, obviously, is a big factor. And I think part of the mass media culture is that people sort of identify with figures, right? So whether it's in the U.S., it's like the focus on the presidential race, even though Congress and maybe matters more, or it's a focus on the leaders when, you know, there's 105, or in, in federal politics, there's 338, you know, ridings happening, 338 races happening. It's the. It's just. It makes it easier as a narrative building experience to look at you know three, four, five leaders rather than hundreds of politicians. What about the circumstance that the NDP find themselves in? It's interesting that they're having this convention this weekend here in Hamilton and talking about policy among other things. Uh, I've I've seen some some writings, and I'm sure you have too, Christo, about the resurgence or actually the the rise of the Green Party, not just here in Ontario. Of course, Mike Schreiner, the first Green Party elected uh, in Guelph, of course, as a, as an MPP. But we're starting to now get the impression that there's a lot of people that are thinking the Green Party nationally uh, is is going to make some inroads into the political spectrum now, uh, and and they're they're writing that from the context of saying, well, that's a threat to the NDP because the NDP traditionally held the left uh, and left leaning people. Uh, there's an option for them now, another party that's strong on the environment, strong on a number of issues that are very similar to the NDP. Should they feel threatened? 
I mean, you know, the, the polls for the Greens certainly are positive, but, you know, uh, the Greens have had historically, even more than the NDP, a, a real big drop-off during election campaigns. Um, the NDP sees a little bit of that, too, because, you know, ABC voting happens, but, but the, with the Greens, it's really substantive. Sometimes they lose half their support in the last couple weeks. So I think historically we have to operate under the assumption that that'll happen again. Now, if they lose half their support now, that's still way higher than it used to be. But, you know, that's something to consider. Another factor is, you know, the Green Party's image, I think, is, is growing. People like the brand, but it's going to come under a lot more scrutiny. And, you know, especially on non-environmental issues, there's real limitations to the Green policies around labor issues. There's a real, I think, uh, limitation of even calling them a left-leaning party, because in really some ways they're very similar to the kind of center-right vision I see from the Liberals. And, and beyond that, even their commitment to green issues is suspect now because Elizabeth May has come out in support of the, you know, uh, shipping tar sands through pipelines. So it's, it's really a concern of, like, what does the Green Party believe? And I think the only, the, not even the Green Party knows what the Green Party believes. And I think that's something they need to figure out because if they don't, I think, uh, you know, outside of a protest vote, I don't know what kind of contribution they're going to make in the next election. So you don't feel that there's any pressure then on the NDP to uh, to move maybe more to the middle? Because that's always been a, a discussion point here, hasn't it? That, you know, they're, they're traditionally the party of labor and, and, and that sort of thing. And it's all about unions and, and you know, brotherhood, etc. And, uh, and the other left-leaning parties in, in other parts of the world have, have tried to move to the center with mixed success, actually. I guess maybe the most famous example of that is Tony Blair when he was the prime minister in, over in the U.K., uh, it went well for a couple of elections, but uh, he, an awful lot of unrest within the party. Andrea Horvath seems to want to stick to traditional values and doesn't seem to want to move the party more to the middle. No, I don't think there's a need for that, and I think that if, if any, if anything, that'll that's a kind of a dead, a dead, a dead end for the NDP because the reality is that the reality is that um, with with that, I mean, you, you end up in a situation where the Liberals can kind of say they're the same. It, increases the chance of strategic voting because it's like if, if I just want to stop conservatives it doesn't matter who I vote for as long as it's not them and and further to that you know the, the people income inequality is increasing the climate crisis is real you know wealth continues to rise for a small proportion of people uh, you know th- threats like automation and outsourcing young people can't afford homes I think the reason socialism is becoming more popular again is because it can solve people's issues and you're seeing this with Bernie Sanders so for me, if, the, if anything, the NDP needs to re-embrace the traditional values of Tommy Douglas, like we talked about earlier this week, mm-hmm. and embrace public ownership and embrace workers' ownership and really push for you know traditional democratic socialist values. So I, I think moving to the center is not a solution to the party, nor is it a solution maybe to some of Canada's biggest problem. Uh, and, and nobody's going to say this overtly, but I mean, is is there a number that that parties have in their mind about uh, elections opportunities that uh, that didn't come to fruition? Uh, in other words, I mean, she's been the leader now for ten years. There've been a few elections there, and her 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 core fortunes have risen and fallen. She had one really bad election. Uh, you know, can Kathleen Wynne won the majority government a few years ago, uh, and a better one this time around. But uh, does, is, is there somebody in the party keeping score and saying, well, one more, and then if you don't get it, you're out? Or, or do they just keep riding along until there does appear that alternative that you've talked about? It's, it's a mixture. I think you're right that, you know, the more the more tries you get, the, lo- the larger the percentage that it'll be your last try. But, you know, context matters, right? So Jack Layton, for instance was leader for a good long while, might still be leader today if, if he hadn't have passed away. And part of the reason was that, you know, he slowly grew every time. He grew, he grew in personal prominence, and the party's seat totals and percentages grew. So even Horwath, I think the reason she was able to survive in 2014, even though there was a lot of discontent, was that despite the fact that the balance of power was lost, the NDP gained a percent in votes and kept the seat totals level. So things like that matter. So I would say that, you know, relative performance is very key. Losing a whole bunch of seats or a whole bunch of percent uh, can really hurt you. But even small gains over multiple elections uh, can help a leader stay. You know, we operate under the assumption today that Andrew Scheer, if he loses, is he out? I'm not sure. If he sees big gains and he forces a liberal minority, maybe he gets to stay on. But if he, you know, largely it's a status quo and Justin Trudeau wins a majority again, I think Scheer is done, for instance. Yeah, there's there's always that yeah. sword hanging over their head, isn't it, uh, yeah. depending on what's yeah. going to happen. Christo, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today.
Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Ivelis, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Glad you're with us today. Uh, this is a discussion that we uh, need to have uh, on a national basis here, and it has to do with affordable housing. Uh, and uh, I know some people, when you mention that phrase, that conjures up the idea of, well, yeah, that means kind of low-income housing. Well, that's part of it. But, I mean, just anybody being able to afford a house these days. A report by a nonprofit group called Generation Squeeze now says that home prices have come to the point where they're actually double what Canadian millennials can afford. That's ridiculous, but that's the circumstance in which we're uh, in right now. Joining us to talk about this is Paul Kershaw. Paul is uh, at the University of British Columbia. He's also founder of Generation Squeeze. Uh, Paul, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. It's my pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is very timely, and I t- because oftentimes when we do see stories or read stories about uh, housing here in this country uh, and quote-unquote affordable housing, they, they tend to focus on Vancouver, Toronto markets and, and as, as the two, you know, I guess, flashpoints for this. But your study here indicates that this is a national problem. It's not just happening in spots. Yeah, I'm really glad you started there because that was one of the primary purposes of this report. It was designed to be a reminder to uh, policymakers at all levels of government, but especially the federal level, since we're so close to the federal election, to help them not forget that the massive gap between where home prices have gone and where young people's earnings have remained is large, and not just in the GTA and not just Vancouver, but in urban centers across the country. And I have to say that it's in Hamilton where the damage done just makes me so terribly frightened, to be honest, because what we see in Hamilton, for instance, is that you'd have to have a young person's earnings go from around $52,000 a year to well over $100,000 a year to bring the current home prices into, va- into reach, or by contrast, see those Hamilton home prices fall by nearly $300,000 so that they would be in range for what a typical young person could own. Which is, in other words, about half price, because exactly. the average is around five to 600000 I think, isn't it? Exactly. It's uh, just it's about five sixty ish So, uh, all right, so if I go and knock on my boss's door and said, look, it, I need to uh, pretty much double my salary so I can afford a house, you know that's not going to happen. Uh, and, and what I like about this report here is you don't just outline the crisis, which I'm glad, as we said off the top, that you've done that. But you also talk about possible solutions and some things that uh, that governments can actually think about. Because uh, to to suggest that the prices are unaffordable for most people these days, I think is a, is a massive understatement at this stage. It's still a dream for us, though, isn't it, Paul? Just about everybody who's starting out in life after they finish their education and decide, okay, I'm going to work, whether they're going to you know be entrepreneurial and start their own business, or they're going to try to find a job someplace else. At some point, you know, they they probably want to own some kind of a house, whether it's a condo, a separate house, whatever the case might be. Uh, and it's it's really just a pipe dream for an awful lot of people now. Well, it certainly is a dream because it's been a dominant part of the Canadian culture. I think in decades past, we often judged attaining adulthood in some regards by the degree to which we were finding home ownership in reach. And it's also been an important way by which people have you know, saved money for their retirement down the road. And let's be clear, some people will still manage to attain this dream, but what the data show is that for a larger and growing share of a younger demographic or newcomers to our housing markets, um, they're going to be renters for longer periods of their lives, if not indefinitely, and we need to start planning for that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There are many great cities around the world that have renting as the culture. Think London, think Berlin, etc., and to New York, and so on. But we haven't had that as the culture, and a lot of the times we actually see neighborhoods resist building new supply of purpose-built rental, which is going, to, which is already a problem and going to become a greater problem in the in the months and years ahead. We just had a discussion very similar to that just a little while ago, and I, I mean, I spent nine years on city council here some time ago. I can't remember the last time that I've seen an apartment building being constructed here. I mean, you know, they, they've been on single families, and you'll see some townhomes uh, projects going on, but a high-rise apartment, in other words, for rental, uh, it just seems passe these days. And, and as you're saying, it seems as if we're going to need more of those, not less. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a younger demographic is already making a range of adaptations when it comes to making a home. 
so first, they're living further from where they work or study. Hamilton's like an epicenter of that. It's, you've seen quite a lot of exodus from the GTA come and transform your housing market. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, because the price of homes is less earnings behind, people are buying less house than they used to. So think about people not having enough bedrooms for their kids or they're you know, trying to have their kids go play on the balcony rather than go play in the yard. These are some of the factors that are already underway. And another factor is simply not moving out from a parent's home more or, you know, or having more roommates for longer periods of life uh, and, and renting longer. And again, making adaptations to new socioeconomic circumstances is not something new in Canada. And certainly people in Hamilton are well aware of that over the last many decades. But what we need right now is public policymakers to meet younger Canadians partway in making adaptations. And this brings me back to your observation that we do talk about solutions. And you opened the show today with the talk the word affordable housing. I mentioned we often think about that being like low-income housing or social housing. Mm-hmm. And our first recommendation is that it's great we have a national housing strategy now. Kudos to the federal government for doing that. We hadn't had one for decades. But we now need a next phase of that national housing strategy because the current form really only focuses on social housing or low-income housing, which is important. But it hasn't yet fully engaged with the reality that the broader market on which the vast majority of people are relying is broken, has broken for young people. And we need to adjust the dials on the broader market uh, so that we try and recouple home prices and earnings over time. I've always considered uh, there's almost like a circle of life when it comes to uh, housing in, in our society here in Canada anyway. Uh, and again, to go back to, you know, as you're starting off uh, with your career or whatever it is you're going to do with your life, invariably, more often than not, we do tend to rent for the, the first little while uh, and then try to save some money up. Then you buy a house, uh, usually a, a, what they call a starter home. Uh, as your family grows, if in fact does, you probably buy a bigger house a few years down the road. And of course, when the, when your children leave, you're empty nesters, invariably, you may downsize and move back again. And and that seems to, to fulfill itself. But it seems over the last couple of years, Paul, especially, it's stagnated. Nobody's moving because uh, they can't. Uh, they, so all of a sudden, that thing is ground to a halt. And and we're found, I guess the result of that is we get shortfalls in, in every facet of housing now. Well, that's a really insightful observation, and it brings up a few points for me. First, let's just do a bit of a then and now story. Yeah. In Hamilton four decades ago, when my mom would have started out as a young woman, the typical 25 to 34-year-old had to work four years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. Today in Hamilton, they'd now need to work 14 years to save that same 20% down payment. So that's just like a decade of extra work and to some degree wasted work effort when it comes to saving for our major cost of living. So that has, that's just showing one of the factors about trying to get into the housing market with that sort of called started home. Then we need to recognize that uh, in lots of places, the gap between a starter home and that next bedroom has grown so large that it's really difficult for people to move up the ladder. Mm -hmm. Third, people who bought homes decades ago and did have enough um, uh, bedrooms for their kids and now have more of an empty nest, so so we call it, um, what we're seeing is actually, in some regards, we have a shortage of housing. We have a shortage of rental supply, a shortage of units. But we actually don't have a shortage of bedrooms. We just have a bad distribution of bedrooms now. We now actually have an older demographic, often with empty bedrooms, and a younger demographic in their prime childbearing and rearing years thinking about using a closet to be the nursery for their second kid. That's, it's, it's, it's crazy, actually, what's going on these days. And, uh, and the frustration, I'm sure, that those people are feeling because they do want to move, they do want to do something differently, but they financially it just doesn't seem to, to be on in, in the cards for them, the way things are structured, the way they are now anyway, which, which I, I guess leads us to the point about, uh, you touched about sec- a second ago, rather, the role of government here. And, and uh, what I found fascinating about uh, some of the information you've included here, Paul, is uh, you've talked about a number of different variables here uh, that maybe a lot of people would not relate to in a, about a discussion about housing. Uh, but you talk about like ancillary costs, non-housing costs like uh, uh, childcare, student debt, transit costs. And, and politicians might look at those as separate issues apart from housing, but they're very much part of this discussion, aren't they? Yeah, um, it so is true, because housing has become the dominant driver of unaffordability in cities across this country. Um, but housing uh, unaffordability can be particularly difficult to address uh, without 
to some degree harming the circumstances of, in particular, our aging population. So, you know, I talked about my mom earlier, and she started on the housing market. You know, my mom actually doesn't lament the high home prices for herself in the way she would for her kids and grandchildren, because the high home prices have made her wealthy and had more financial security for her retirement. Mm -hmm. And we've seen similar things in cities across the country. And so as we want to see home prices, uh, you know, no longer climb, level off, dip to some degree as we have, we need to actually be willing to celebrate that. But if we were to see home prices drop by several hundred thousand dollars, which would bring them back into reach for young people, that could be very harmful to an older demographic. So we're needing to find some intergenerational solidarity here, which is saying, hey, young folks, will you be willing to work more to pay for your homes? Because that's needed to protect your parents and grandparents. But then we need our parents and grandparents to say, ah, the only way they're going to be able to manage to do that is if childcare doesn't cost another rent size payment or going on parental leave doesn't cost another mortgage size cost or transit when they live further from where they work or study doesn't add up to another house size cost. And if we can bring down those other major costs in young people's lives, they can then use more of their stagnant earnings to cover their housing costs and manage this massive gap between prices and their earnings. There was a, a ratio, and I'm trying to think this off the top of my head, of, of how much of your income should actually go to a, to a housing, an accommodation, whatever it is, whether it's mortgage or rent or whatever the case might be. And, and I think the number was around 20%, something of that nature. 30%. Thir- is it 30? If uh, you go and, over 30%, the CMHC thinks you're, you're uh, in, in unaffordability territory, and that's what we've used. But what we're hearing now, more and more people, that number has now become 50 55%. Almost half, in some cases more than half, of their income has to go towards accommodation, uh, which uh, that, that defines unaffordability doesn't it? Yeah, and so uh, if people are interested in that theme, I encourage them to check out a related research project with some colleagues of mine called the Canadian Rental Housing Index, and um, they have that for every city really in the country, and you can see how your city lights up in terms of unaffordability, and they've got two measures. The standard definition of, like, do you have to spend more than 30% of your pre-tax earnings on your rental costs, which a lot of Canadians do, but they've now pushed it all the way to, are you spending more than 50%, which a frightening percentage percentage of um, renters are now needing to do. And renters are disproportionately young folks, but there are, uh, whereas 80% of uh, seniors are homeowners, 20% are renters. And so they're going to, that smaller group of seniors will also be feeling the pinch. So we, we have to look at all of these facets of it. So obviously, we, oh, there's, as you mentioned, a federal election coming up in just a couple of months here. Uh, that's why there should be a discussion about, uh, about child care, about daycare. Uh, that's why you have politicians, well, like Bernie Sanders down in the States and a couple of others that are running for president that are saying, I want to eliminate student debt uh, altogether. The universe post-secondary should be free. Uh, and I know that sounds awfully radical, but uh, I guess you know, da- radical times call for radical measures, don't they? Yeah, and so we've talked about reducing red size costs in young people's lives. I think that's a big part of the issue. Uh, but we can talk also about housing policy specifically. I mentioned earlier, like we need a next phase of the national housing strategy, and we're we're calling on every level, um, every federal party to make that commitment, so that no matter who wins in office, we will not lose momentum. We also want policymakers to adopt a timeline. We need to get serious about this. We're not going to solve the problem tomorrow. It's going to be a decade-long process, but I'm really proud that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has adopted for its goal that every Canadian resident should be able to afford a home that meets their needs by 2030. They recognize more people are going to be doing that as renters. Some may still do it through, uh, through ownership, but that's the goal. And I think it's a bold timeline. And so, again, we've adopted that at Generation Squeeze and amongst my uh, housing research colleagues uh, across the country. Uh, and we're hoping every party will do that. And then, la- well, not lastly, but in terms of a guiding framework, we want every party to embrace the notion of homes first. This should be the principle driving all of our policy goals for housing. The idea that housing first has to be a place to call home, not a stock market, not a way to launder money, not a backyard that trumps any changes in your neighborhood, and generally speaking, not a way to get rich. Because the problem at its essence is that Canadians over the last while, in my mom's demographic in particular, wanted two things from housing, and we can only have one of the two. On the one hand, my mom wanted shelter, and she raised me in that, and good honor, I'm so appreciative. But at that same time, people wanted their homes to be a really good investment in their portfolio. 
And the problem with that aspiration is that they w- that means they wanted their home prices to go faster than the rest of the economy and faster than people's earnings. And we've now seen that over decades, and the damage is so great, it's going to take us a decade at least to solve it. Have governments missed the mark? On uh, I understand the policies you want to see governments enact here to try to help this situation along, but the ones that they have done, and, and I agree with you, your analysis about the national housing strategy. It's about time we we finally got one of these. But they, they have piecemeal added other things that have made it more difficult for young people to get mortgages. Uh, they've they've decided they've put some regulations in fact to try to end speculation, which is a good thing. But that's still having an impact on people that are not speculative and just want to buy a house. Did, did they have to step? back a little bit and say, wait a second here, for for that action, there's a reaction, which maybe we didn't really want to cause. Well, I think we need a comprehensive approach that's going to involve dialing down harmful kinds of demand. And so speculation, whether it's local or global, is going to be part of that. We want to dial up the right kinds of supply, and that means we're going to need to change zoning, which has been privileging the single detached homes that you've seen quite a few have built at in Hamilton, but at the expense of not building more density like apartments and rental. Uh, we're actually going to need to think differently about how we raise taxes. Uh, we do most of our raising of taxes by trying to look at people's earnings, which has been flat. And we actually do very little to raise taxes by looking at the one thing that's been growing wealth in people's lives at record rates, and that's the rise in home prices. And so we, t- we talk about there needing to be a tax shift to, to some degree take the pressure off earnings for regular folks and compensate a bit by taxing high-value homes more. And that's a sort of a three-part strategy that's generally going to need to be in place. You mentioned about how at the federal level they've uh, added stress tests to to some degree make sure that if someone's taking a mortgage, they can be protected in the face of rising interest rates, which are likely to happen because interest rates still remain at near historic low levels. And some people in, in a younger demographic say, oh, that's making it harder for me, and boy, do I sympathize. But there's two ways we can try and, in the short term, hack the broken housing system for young folks. Given high home prices, we can either allow them to borrow more to try and cope. But the data show if you borrow more, that's actually going to contribute to high home prices still continuing to rise. And then you ultimately pay more both at the sticker price and on your mortgage. The second and longer more sustainable longer-term way to address the housing problem for younger folks is to have home prices level off and come down. And that's one factor that the stricter stress tests are contributing to. It's not the only piece, but there's no silver bullet in this issue, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. And so right now, while the real estate industry is putting out reports that, oh, we've seen a massive dip in home prices, what we're trying to do with this report is put it into context. There's a dip. It's not massive. It's leaving an, actually a massive unaffordability gap. So if we're leveling off here, we're leveling off at critical, untenable levels, and we need to celebrate the stabilization of home prices, and we want to celebrate actually perhaps some, some more dip and definitely leaving a chance over the next years for home prices to not rise so that earnings can, to some degree, gather some, um, gather some room and, re- and reconnect. Uh, Paul, if people want to get a copy of this, where, where can they find this? They can go to gensqueeze.ca, that's G-E-N-squeeze.ca. On the landing page, actually, if you just scroll to the bottom, you'll find uh, links to the latest studies. Uh, any chance that you could email this to the three party leaders, the four party leaders, I guess, with this election coming up? This is a, this should be required reading for them before they decide on policy. Brilliant. So we are already doing some of that liaising as a Gen Squeeze is a voice for younger Canadians in politics and markets. So we're taking this study as part of our voice to the political parties. Uh, but we also are going to be supporting Canadians from coast to coast to. Um, to do the very same thing and take these reports and take key ideas from them and share it with their current MPs. And then as they learn about who their candidates are, to share it with candidates and ask all parties to commit to the four-part federal policy uh, framework that I've been alluding to in this interview. Well, I hope it's uh, going to have an impact on them. Uh, such a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for the work you've done on this, and thanks for the time today, Paul. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Have a great day. I'd be happy to join another time. And um, thanks for your leadership, because it takes great interviewers like you to shine a light on stories like ours. Do appreciate that. Thanks so much, Paul. Paul Kershaw, founder of Generation Squeeze. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.